As we turn to John's Gospel, we're going to be rejoining Jesus and his disciples at their last meal together. Jesus has already made sure this will be an unforgettable meal. He made sure of that by doing something no one in his position would ever do in this time and culture. Jesus, the host of the meal, got up from the table and he performed the job of the lowest slave, washing his disciples' feet. Now that would have been shocking under any circumstances, but it's all the more shocking because Jesus is not just a human teacher. He is God in the flesh. What Jesus did was God the creator humbling himself to serve his creation. And that foot washing was just an illustration of the supremely shocking thing Jesus is about to do. In a few hours time, Jesus will humble himself all the way down to death on a cross. And he will do that to cleanse humanity in a much more significant way. By washing his disciples' feet, he provided cleansing from the dust and dirt of the road. On the cross, Jesus will provide cleansing from the stains of their sin. So this meal is already memorable, but there's much more to come. We're going to pick up after Jesus has again resumed his place at the table with the others. And the focus now shifts to two of Jesus' disciples. First Judas, then Peter. And in these moments, Jesus will teach his disciples and us that no one is as strong as they think they are. Not those who aim to get rid of Jesus, nor those who aim to follow Jesus. We're going to pick up at John chapter 13, verse 18. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1081, or in the larger print Bibles, 1674. And we'll read down to the end of the chapter in verse 38. Jesus has just spoken about his disciples being washed by him. He has just called them to follow his example of humble service. But now the focus changes and Jesus says in verse 18, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. And testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. 
Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me Three times. This is God's word. It tells us no one is as strong as they think they are. Firstly, not those who aim to get rid of Jesus. They are not as strong as they think they are because he has power over the darkness. Early in his ministry, Jesus chose 12 men who would be with him throughout his ministry on earth. Of course, Jesus had more than 12 followers, but he chose these 12 specifically to share life with him. They walked with him as he traveled from place to place. They stayed where he stayed. They ate with him. They had unparalleled access to him. They knew him better than anyone else. And Jesus knew them perfectly. In fact, even before he chose them, he knew them perfectly. He knew what was in their hearts. Much earlier in his ministry, Jesus said to the disciples, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. That was back in chapter 6. And Jesus did not mention a name at that point. But what's clear is he knew Judas. He knew his heart. And here in verse 18 of chapter 13, when Jesus says, I know those I have chosen, 
The sense is, again, when I chose the 12 of you to be my inner circle of disciples, I was not ignorant about you. I was not naive. What I'm about to tell you is not happening because of some oversight or some mistake on my part. And to underline that point, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, from Psalm 41, which we read earlier. The part Jesus quotes is, he who shared my bread has turned against me, literally has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41 is the Psalm of David. David was God's anointed king in the Old Testament, God's Messiah. And David's life became a foreshadowing of God's ultimate Messiah. Now, it's not that every detail of David's life pointed to that greater Messiah. Certainly not. David, if you know the story of David, he was a murderer and an adulterer. Even in Psalm 41, we find David confessing his sin and asking for God's mercy. That aspect of David's life didn't foreshadow the ultimate Messiah. It just proved David himself was not that true Messiah. But David did experience rejection and betrayal by some of those closest to him. His son Absalom tried to take the throne from David. And David's trusted friend and counselor Ahithophel was one of those who joined Absalom's conspiracy against David. And that situation of betrayal is probably what's behind David's words in Psalm 41. When David laments that he who shared my bread has turned against me. He's thinking of a trusted friend, probably Ahithophel. In the ancient world, to share someone's bread was to be in close fellowship with them. And that made the betrayal all the more abominable and wounding. It really was like being kicked in the gut. That's what's implied by the literal translation of the words. He who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And the point is, by quoting Psalm 41 here, as he sits at this table, or reclines beside this table, sharing his bread with these men he has shared his life with, Jesus wants them to know he's about to experience a similar kick in the guts as one of them betrays him. But Jesus is not sharing this for their sympathy. He is sharing it so they will know he is not a helpless victim. He's not being taken by surprise. Even in this, Jesus is the all-knowing, all-powerful one. He's the one who revealed himself in the Old Testament by the name, I am. Or, I am who I am. Look at verse 19. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. This dark hour, this despicable betrayal by a close friend, ultimately will reveal Jesus' glory. 
as the almighty God. I am the one who turns even human evil to serve his good purposes. That doesn't mean, however, that going through this experience is a breeze for Jesus, a walk in the park. No, earlier in John's gospel, we've seen him experience deep anguish at the prospect of the cross. And here, as he makes things plain for his disciples, we again see that profound agitation in Jesus' soul. Look at verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Back in chapter 12, at a previous meal, we noticed the way things would be set up here. It is not like Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper. Da Vinci painted Jesus and the disciples sitting on chairs in a row at a long table. But in fact, they're reclining round the table with their heads closest to the middle and their feet furthest away. They're like spokes coming out from the hub of a wheel. They're reclining on their left elbow so they can reach the food with their right hand. Apparently, Peter is not right by Jesus, so he makes a sign to the one who is right by him. That person is referred to in verse 23 as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's almost certainly John himself, the writer of this gospel. But why does he refer to himself that way? Didn't Jesus love all his disciples? Yes. He did. And there's no arrogance here from John. By referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, we get a sense of John's amazement about that fact. It was an amazement that never left John, even years later as he writes these words, that the Lord of the universe would love him. John. We get a similar sense of wonder in Charles Wesley's hymn where he says, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? In any case, John is apparently on Jesus' right and that helps us make sense of the detail that seems so strange to us who are used to sitting on chairs around the table. After a nod from Peter, John, who is reclining, remember, on his left elbow with his back to Jesus, he leans back against Jesus in order to ask him, Lord, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. 
So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. Notice a few things about these verses. Apparently, the rest of the disciples don't hear what Jesus says to John about giving the bread to his betrayer. That's why they don't understand the significance of what Jesus says out loud to Judas about doing what he's going to do quickly. Notice also that the other disciples appear to have had no inkling at all that Judas might be the one. No suspicions about him at all. Because even when Judas gets up and leaves, they assume the best about him. That since Judas took care of the money bag, Jesus must have sent him to buy some more supplies or to give some more money away to the poor. Judas seems to have fitted in so well among the disciples that even now they cannot conceive he might be the betrayer. Something else to consider is that it was a mark of honor and friendship for the host to dip the bread and hand it to one of the guests. And in order for Jesus to hand the bread directly to Judas, Judas was most likely in the place immediately to Jesus' left, the place of honor. And so even here, with all that he knows about Judas, Jesus is reaching out to him with love. But in that moment, Judas refuses the light that is shining on him. He chooses the darkness. Earlier in chapter 13, we heard that Satan had been prompting Judas. He had been nudging Judas forward with his plan. But here, as Judas hardens in his resolve to betray Jesus, we're told in verse 27, Satan entered into Judas. The implication is that Judas is now possessed by Satan. And yet, the last thing to notice in these few verses is that even as Judas hardens in his resolve against Jesus, even as he is possessed by Satan, the prince of darkness, even so, Judas must obey the word of Jesus. In verse 27, Jesus says, what you are about to do, do quickly. And verse 30 tells us, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. Yes, it is nighttime according to the clock. But it is also night in the sense that this darkest hour has now gone beyond the point of no return. But can you see how Jesus is Lord even over this darkness? Even as Judas rejects Jesus' love and pursues his own evil desires, even as Judas becomes an instrument in Satan's hand to serve Satan's intentions, even so, Jesus is not a victim here. Even here, 
Jesus' word rules. Even here, Jesus is not having his life taken from him. He is laying it down of his own accord. Nothing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can thwart the saving purposes of Jesus. So Judas and Satan will do exactly what they want to do. They will do their worst. And even in that, they will serve the one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord even over the darkness. No one is as strong as they think they are. Certainly not those who reject Jesus. Certainly not those who wish to destroy him and wipe him from the earth. In a moment, just after Jesus has, Judas has left the room, Jesus will announce, Now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. Really? Now? As Judas goes to do his worst and Satan's worst? Yes, even now, the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Because all things, all things are under the power of Jesus, the Son of God. And if that's true here in the very darkest hour of all, then it's also true in the darkness and chaos that swirl around your life. It's true in the dark events and the dark situations we hear about on the news every day. War, abuse, the misrepresentation of Christianity. The teaching that evil is good and good is evil. Like the transgender ideology that tells vulnerable autistic teenagers their anxieties and insecurities will be solved if they have their bodies mutilated by a surgeon. So they can sort of resemble the other gender. Jesus is Lord over that darkness. And he's Lord over all the other dark, destructive forces of sin around us. None of those things are good. None of them are to be celebrated. They really are dark and evil. They ought to trouble us. Just as verse 21 told us, the events of this night troubled Jesus. And yet, troubled as he was by the betrayal he experienced, Jesus has power over even the darkness of his own betrayal and death. He was the one who could turn even that darkest hour to his own glory. And he has that same power today over the darkness that swirls around you. In the end, he will also turn that darkness to his own glory. 
Those who reject Jesus and the forces of evil they serve are not as strong as they think they are. And neither are those who aim to follow Jesus. We depend on the power of his victory. We've already seen Jesus' analysis of what's going on in this dark night. Look at it here in verse 31. When he was gone, that's when Judas was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. The words at once tie this glorification of the Father and the Son directly to the cross. That means this is a work only Jesus can do. Only Jesus can go right into this deepest darkness and overcome the darkness. And so Jesus says in verse 33, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus will go ahead by himself. That is his mission. The disciples have a different mission. Their mission is not to overcome the powers of darkness. It's to love one another. And look how their mission will only be possible because Jesus has carried out his mission. They are to love as he has loved them. That's referring to the love he's about to show on the cross. Love to the limit. That will be the kind of love they are to show. And it will only be possible because Jesus' love came first. They will only be able to love like this because of what Jesus achieved on the cross. Now, Jesus will have more to say about this a bit later on. He doesn't develop the point here. And the reason he doesn't develop it here is because Peter interrupts him. Peter isn't interested in listening to what Jesus says about loving one another. All Peter has heard is, where I am going, you cannot come. In verse 33, and so Peter cuts Jesus off and demands in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Earlier, when Jesus washed Peter's feet, Jesus said Peter would only understand later what the foot washing meant. It would only make sense when Peter saw Jesus on the cross. And here, Jesus says Peter can only follow later. He means that will only be possible after the cross. Only then will Peter be supplied with the power to love sacrificially. Only then will Peter be supplied with the strength to lay down his own life. 
what Jesus is saying, but Peter brushes Jesus' words aside. Peter is sure he's strong enough to do it now. Verse 37, Peter asks, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. What's the problem here? The problem is Peter doesn't realize it is only in the power of Jesus' victory that Peter can win any victories himself. Peter's confident he already has what it takes to follow Jesus and do great things for Jesus. Spectacular things like laying down his life in a blaze of glory. And so, of course, Peter's capable of doing whatever else might be needed. That loving one another stuff Jesus mentioned a moment ago. Yeah, sure, I'll do that, Jesus, if you really think it's important. I don't know if Jesus has a little smile on his face when he says to Peter, really, Peter, you're such a warrior for the cause, are you? My friend, before daylight, you will have denied three times that you're even my disciple. Never mind laying down your life for me. Peter's strength and courage won't even last through this one night. And what would cause this great failure on Peter's part? The accusations of a servant girl as Peter warmed his hands at the fire. That is what would defeat this great warrior for Christ. And Peter's not the only one who draws his confidence from completely the wrong place. All of us who aim to follow Jesus have problems with this. When it comes to living for Jesus, don't we tend to examine ourselves to see what we've got about us? Can we talk well? Can we master tricky arguments? Can we answer tricky questions? Do we have good willpower? Do we have the kind of personality people will follow? Do we have a physical presence about us that earns us respect from other people? Do we have an energy that seems to be ready for anything? And if we do have some combination of those things, we feel confident. Yes, I can get somewhere in following Jesus. I think I can even accomplish some decent things for Jesus. On the other hand, if we don't have that kind of stuff, that kind of fizz and spark about us, then we feel useless. I'll never finish the race. I'll never do anything for Jesus. Sometimes we look at a person who's not a Christian and we say, he or she would make a great Christian. What do we mean when we say things like that? Don't we mean he or she has a likable personality 
or a sharp mind, or they have a good head for organizing or a persuasive way of speaking, or they have drive to get things done, if they would just do Jesus the favor of getting on board with him, the kingdom of God could really start to go places with someone like that. But all of that is mistaken. It's the same mistake Peter is making here. I'm strong. I'll follow you. I've taken a deep look inside myself and I find a hero in there. I've got it in me to accomplish things for you, Jesus. In Peter's thinking, the cross just isn't a factor in all this. What difference would the cross make? Isn't the cross about Peter having his sins forgiven? Yes, it is. And it's about much more than that too. In verse 36, Jesus said to Peter, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. It's only after the cross that Peter can follow Jesus. It's Jesus' victory at the cross that will provide the strength Peter needs to obey, to love, even to lay down his own life. Peter's own strength doesn't really come into it. Peter's own strength could never be enough. The only strength that is enough is the strength that flows from Jesus' victory. From the new life Jesus won at the cross. In the book of Revelation, John describes the church of Jesus Christ facing the devil. John says about those men and women, they triumphed over the devil. How? How did they do it? Was it their physical strength? Did they triumph over the devil with the power of their intellect? With the power of their personality? No. John says they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Their power came from Jesus' work on the cross and their reliance on that work. They triumphed over Satan by relying on the blood of the Lamb and saying so, testifying to the power of the blood of the Lamb. And it's through that reliance on the cross that John can go on to say these followers of Jesus did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Here, Peter thought he could face death for Jesus with just his own natural strength and courage. Peter was badly wrong. Peter's own strength and courage didn't even get him through one conversation with a slave girl. Peter needed the strength that flowed from Jesus' life-saving, life-providing death. The strength that would be delivered by God's Holy Spirit living in Peter. 
Jesus will go on to explain the Holy Spirit's role in chapters to come. For now, the relevant point is that the Holy Spirit was sent as a result of Jesus' victory on the cross. So here's the application of this. Whatever challenge you are facing as a Christian, don't look at yourself and think either I can do this, I've got this, or alternatively, if you're not impressed by what you see in yourself, don't think I can't do this, I'm hopeless. Both of those reactions are missing the point. Our strength for following Jesus does not come from our natural abilities. And it's not scuppered by our natural inabilities. Our strength comes from Jesus' victory. We can follow because and only because he has gone ahead. By his self-surrender on the cross... Jesus won the decisive victory over Satan and all the powers of darkness and the curse that dogged this world. By his self-surrender on the cross, Jesus won new creation life for all who trust in him. You and I need the cross not just for starting the Christian life, We need it for every day, every step of the Christian life. Any triumph you and I ever have as Christians will be by the blood of the Lamb. So it's no harm, really, to have our self-confidence and our self-reliance shattered by failure. It puts us in a good place to rely on the true source of our confidence. So the way to make use of this passage is to start every day by realizing all over again, I can face the challenge of this day, not because I'm strong enough to be victorious, but because Jesus went ahead of me and won the victory for me on the cross. I can face the challenges of this day by the blood of the Lamb. I can find the strength I need to obey and to love, not by searching for the hero inside myself, but by relying on the one who has broken the power of disobedience and hate and fear and death. We have the privilege this morning of sharing the Lord's Supper together. And as we share the bread and wine, it is always appropriate to consider how Jesus' broken body and shed blood won salvation for us. But this morning, maybe we can also see this bread and wine from a new angle. In these moments, maybe we can consider how the strength we need for each day also flows from Jesus' broken body and shed blood. We couldn't stand for Jesus, 
for even one day. We couldn't follow him for one day if he hadn't defeated darkness on the cross and won new creation life for us on the cross. So as we take the bread and wine this morning, let's also take hold of the truth that lies behind the bread and wine. We stand, we persevere, we triumph only by the blood of the Lamb. So before we share the bread and wine, let's join in a song that celebrates that triumph. It's the song we mentioned earlier, the song of amazement. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood?